You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I am joined in the studio tonight by Tara Judah and Josh Nelson. Good evening to you both. But let's take a look at what we're going to be talking about tonight on Plato's Cave. We're going to go from examples of humanity at its worst to examples of humanity at its best. That's what I'm putting out there anyway. We're going to start off in absolute hell with the latest film by Canadian author David Cronenberg. This is Maps to the Stars. It's a vicious satire of Hollywood and everything it stands for. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't write it, Tara. We'll then (laughs) return... Maybe who says I didn't? <laughs> we'll then return to the dystopian future of the Hunger Games franchise with the latest instalment of the popular young adult series, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. And then we're going to finish up in New Zealand with the based on a true story, The Dark Horse, about a brilliant chess player who finds respite from his struggles with mental illness when he begins coaching a youth chess team. So that's the hopeful part of the show we'll end up in. But Josh, take us to hell with the latest film by David Cronenberg, Maps to the Stars. It's my pleasure, my deep, perverse pleasure to introduce Maps to the Stars, the latest film from director David Cronenberg from a script by Bruce Wagner, partially based on his experiences as a limousine driver driving around celebrities in LA. And this film is set in Hollywood, in the heartland of uh, Tinseltown. And as you mentioned, Thomas, this is a fairly vicious satire about celebrity culture, consumer culture, but set specifically within Hollywood, which clearly in this case duplicates or doubles as... I think show business more broadly, but maybe we can come back to that point. It's an ensemble cast. There's a number of actors in here, including uh, Mia Vasakaska, who plays a young girl, Agatha, who um, arrives in Hollywood at the beginning of the film. She gets off a bus and she's greeted by her limousine driver, played by Robert Pattinson. And as the film develops, we start to see that these characters are all loosely connected. We have uh, Julianne Moore, who plays a uh, uh, Havana Sagrand. She's an, a struggling actress. Well, not struggling. She's quite wealthy. Um, but she's also the daughter of a very famous actress. And she's in line to play the part of her mother in a remake of the film her mother was famous for many years ago. We also have John Cusack, who um, his character is Stafford Weiss. He's a, I guess you'd call him a, um, he's a cross between a televangelist and a New Age therapist, mainly to the stars. So that works, yeah. As the film develops, we start to see that these characters are all connected and all connected through their relationship in various ways to show business and to celebrity culture. Um, one of the things that struck me straight away about this film, even though it's actually not written by Cronenberg, this feels very Cronenberg in, in, in many ways, but it also reminded me instantaneously of Brett Easton Ellis, and I think that's part and parcel of the kind of social satire of consumer culture. These characters talk to each other on the cell phones, they're constantly talking about their careers. Their, uh, their name dropping, they're talking about consumer products and, and culture, and this is the sort of the, I guess the the trademarks of the Brett Easton Ellis social satire. But I think it goes well ab- above and beyond the the level of satire we commonly get with uh, Easton Ellis novels. There's some fascinating things in here, which is a part and parcel of Cronenberg territory. And I'm 
going to list a couple of them so we can talk about them in a bit more depth. But there's there's at least two or three scenes which are straight out of the Cronenberg playbook, and I mean that in a in a way in which they f- they fit perfectly within this the context of the satire. One of them is a, a session involving John Cusack and Julianne Moore, in which he's sort of using a, a cross between massage therapy and, and physical therapy with a kind of regression therapy when she's on her back and and he's sort of holding her down and talking about her relationship to her mother. And this is a, instantly recognisable as a similar scene from David Cronenberg's film The Brood. We also have sex in cars from Crash. We have a, a girl, well, Agatha, the Vasakowski character, is a burn victim, so we have this idea of scarring and scarification. But one of the things that really struck me about this is the, is the structure of this film is so smart because it gives us those moments of the social satire, the vacuous lifestyles of these characters, the kind of the surfaceness and, and the kind of superficiality of these characters. And each of those moments is then contrasted with a scene of extreme kind of abject quality. And this film is deeply scatological. We have characters pissing, shitting. We have uh, scenes involving cum, uh, vomit, and one very funny scene, this is where the film is darkly comic, involving Julianne Moore on a toilet farting and complaining about her constipation because of the, the pharmaceutical drugs or the drugs that she's on. And I think this is really what gets to the heart of, of how Cronenberg is, is um, directing the satire here. And he's using these various character tropes and, and the use of abject as a sort of a symbolic way of satirising the darkness or the, the kind of the abject underside of Hollywood culture. And I think if you, if you go into this film and you approach this film literally, and there was a number of walkouts in the screening that I was in, I don't think you're going to get this film. I think, like many of Cronenberg's films, he gives us a kind of surface reality, but he explores deeper themes through symbolism, and this film is is no different in that regard. I'm really surprised to hear that there were walkouts, because I think this film works perfectly on a number of levels. I think, actually, just as a character drama, it's extremely successful. The performance from Julianne Moore is really remarkable. I mean, her entire career, I've been a big fan of hers, and I've always thought that she's really got something special but i think this this is you know award worthy this role this particular she role won it's, can, didn't she? it's fantastic she she really um portrays the different uh i guess elements of the psychosis and of the psyche of her character um very well and and flipping between the way that she presents herself every time she presents herself to somebody new uh, we see that you know she suffers great pain in the moments when she goes to her therapy we see the pain that she suffers when she's on her own and she's very much haunted by ghosts of the past and i think that that i'd like to come back to the ghost thing in just a moment too but i also want to talk about how um she presents these really grotesque versions of herself to others um and and the the kind of how how gross and unnerving it is to see someone present something that they think is positive that's probably the worst thing you could imagine and that's really what her character does and that's what Cronenberg's bringing out is this idea of the actress as, as you know this this horrible being who just is completely misplaced with their sense of self and who they are. Um, I also want to just put a caveat on that though and say that I don't think that Cronenberg is, um, is kind of I guess punishing his leading lady in the same way that you might see with, you know, the the likeness to Brett Easton Ellis is a little bit troubling for me because I think he's fairly misogynistic. Oh, I was just talking more about the yeah. consumer culture but aspect I, and the satire. I don't think that in this film that comes through. I think this is much more like the way in which David Lynch uses somebody like Laura Dern in Inland Empire or Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. Um, this film, you know, also conjures up things like Bubble, those sorts of films in a really successful way. 
that they kind of love and loathe the, the dynamic between director and, and actress and that lead actress. There's something compelling about her, but there's also something dishonest in this constant performativity. Um, and there is also this sense, back to the ghosting that uh, we get, is that Hollywood is really a haunted place, that uh, that you can't help but be entangled with the things that, are there from the past and that is not just you know I mean the leading ladies before you the ones that you're constantly living up to the fact that you're playing parts of perhaps people who maybe did exist at one point this this constant question of authenticity and search for some sense of truth in self through performance and I really think this is in a way it's also an actor's film I mean this you know this is a film for anybody who's ever enjoyed anything about performance and that doesn't have to be as a formal actor but just in the in the way in which in our lives we perform things this this film really concentrates really heavily on that um and the the the, even the family dynamics because there's lots of strains in the characters it's quite a big cast in a sense but they're all intertwined um the Mia Vasakowska character is this sort of like insipid vapid um young woman who is is trying to claw back some sense of herself but she's constantly denigrated by the people around her and the people that she looks up to and the people who she hopes she can prove that she's made a change in herself too um yeah I really loved this film I think it's a great indictment of Hollywood. I think it's a great indictment of not only the system, but also the way in which falsity just breeds further falsity. It's like it's like an organism that attaches itself to everyone around it, and you you know you just can't escape it. Look, it's certainly all there. The, the kind of three reoccurring ideas or images that I noted down after this film that repeats throughout the film and, and touches many characters. The three ideas are incest, shit, and things burning. Um, you know, from Julianne Moore's character being a victim of incest and, and that pops up later in the film you know just, just this you know very very straightforward symbol for the idea that in Hollywood everyone's kind of all in, entwined and sleeping with it, with each other and it's all doing favours for each other and sort of fulfilling each other's kind of desires and not really giving anything of value to the rest of the world and the whole kind of consuming of, of shit I mean that's a commodity in this film that, that, that some of the younger actors joke about the fact that people are stealing their own waste and, and selling at a great profit it actually reminded me of Antiviral, which um, was made by Cronenberg's son, which had a kind of similar idea where it's set in the future and and, and celebrities were growing meat from their own DNA for people to consume. This is sort of the other end of that. People can, people get to keep the waste. And, and the constant image as well, things going up in flames, burning and obliterating. There's, there's a great scene very close to the start where Mia Wasikowska and... Um, I've forgotten his name. I, I adore him. Um, Patterson, Robert Patterson, uh, standing at, at the burn ruins of a, of a of a house that we discover means something a lot more later in the film, and the big Hollywood sign is kind of looming up over them, and they're standing in this this wasteland. It, it's all quite lovely. The, the film that we haven't mentioned, which is the immediate one I leapt to, was The Player, Robert Altman's The Player. You've got multiple storylines. Um, in this film, Carrie Fisher plays a version of herself, and The Player, of course, was famous for lots of other characters playing versions of themselves. And that's quite a vicious satire of Hollywood as well. I think Maps of the Stars goes a lot further with the extremity, with some really dark ideas. And a lot of the dialogue in this film is quite shocking, especially some of the dialogue that comes out of the child actors. There's one character in particular, Benji, who's an absolute monster. And I think within the first five minutes of meeting him, he manages to say some horrific things in terms of race and sexuality and... and um, 
and, and gender, you know, and it's actually quite distressing. I really liked all the individual parts of this film, but it never really came together for me in a way that I had a quite a sort of more holistic experience that you you, you both have had. It's really weird. I recognise the satire in this film, but I think the symbolism is really surface. I, I, I think it's it's very. Uh, Overt, and I don't think it quite packs the punch. There's something like the player. I, I, I felt very detached while watching the whole film, admiring it, but never really getting all that in, in involved in it. And that's possibly because I brought enormous expectations to it. You know, we're all big Cronenberg fans, and I think I've probably been the biggest defender of his recent work. I really like Cosmopolis. I really like The Dangerous Method. I loved Eastern uh, Promises, but I think this is the film that's done the, the least for me of his of his um. Of his work as much as I do like it I mean it's sort of like a David Bowie album you know even a lesser David Bowie album is better than most things out there but I kind of feel that about this I like it but I don't think it's the best Cronenberg has shown us oh I this I think this is pretty extraordinary actually and this is in my top films of the year really it's fair to say yeah actually can I mention another thing I'd be curious to hear what you say about that is I felt this was shot almost like television it's really simple uh, uh, camera angles and um, and camera movements and I think that's deliberate to sort of we set you know we got glamorous characters glamorous settings and so they make the cinematography very basic but I felt a little bit like I was watching something on television I think that's deliberate I mean it's yeah. also deliberately overlit a lot of the a lot of this um, yeah. and it's also worth pointing out this is the first time Cronenberg shot outside of Toronto. I mean, a lot of this was shot in LA on on location as opposed to in sets um, back in Toronto. And you uh, don't want to make Hollywood look nice when you're, you know, making a film about how disgusting it no, is. No, but you I think, think about Mulholland Drive. That doesn't make Hollywood look nice, but it's all beautiful and sinister. But it still makes Hollywood look mysteriously enticing. I think this film very much wants to expose just how flat and plain LA is. And I mean, it, it yeah. is. Well, I it mean, succeeds you know, in that, yeah. Th- I think that the vision of Hollywood in this film is much closer to what it actually looks like when you go there because it's not an impressive place. It's you know it's not beautiful. It doesn't look like most movies show it to look. It's you know. But again, the player did that. Well, well sure, but <laughs> just because one film doesn't doesn't mean that, this sure. is a very different type of film sure, to the player right. as well. In, in in one regard, look, one thing that Cronenberg ha- has said about this film, which sort of struck a chord, is he talks about Hollywood as something that's equally seductive and repellent, and the, the combination of those two things is what makes it so potent and fascinating. And I yeah. think that there is there is that quality in the film. There is the seduction of it, the fantasy of it, and the repellent, and that's where I think the abject element comes in. But I think it's a real achievement, and maybe this is where we differ a little bit that the film keeps the audience at an emotional remove. And I think satire has to work with that. If you if you indulge the audience's um, psychological connection to these characters and want to see them as real characters, then suddenly the approach you've taken to the satire is, is imminently weakened or drastically weakened. And I think keeping it at that remove, which makes it a cold experience for a number of people, and a lot of the criticisms of Cronenberg from some people have been that he they, they find him an emotionally cold director. But I think in this case, um, it certainly works towards the film's um, satirical aim and I thought it was really impressive in that regard. I agree with that. I actually think that's why this, for me, works as a satire and something like Wolf of Wall Street doesn't um, is precisely because of that kind of distance that I think you need when you're doing satire and I think that it works very well here because uh, I don't think that at any time anyone wants you to engage with these characters on a a kind of loving level, even for as much as I love Julianne Moore and find that a really difficult barrier for anyone to break through. I think that Cronenberg succeeds in making her truly grotesque at times in this film. I mean, you know, there's 
of one of my favourite actresses who I think is just stupendously good. And I actually, there are moments in this film where he's so good at, at transforming who she is and she's so good at performing that, that she is repulsive. I think they're all repulsive in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty much all uh, yeah, horrible characters. I'm really fascinated actually now about this idea about does satire need to be cold and, and distancing? Because I think the most powerful satire is when you get a taste for the seductive element that it's criticising and then you have the rug put out under your feet. And I certainly got that with The Wolf of Wall Street. And I think about films like uh, A Clockwork Orange as well, to go way back, where you, you feel a sense of the seduction and and that complicates the message that the film is, is presenting and it makes you very much question, how could I have been sucked into something that I objectively know is is quite abhorrent? I So I think I actually prefer to get a to get that emotional connect. I think it works both levels. I mean, I don't think there's any one, yes, one, like one, one, one approach to, yes. to, to satire. And I <laughs> yeah. think there, there are elements where you get the seduction. It wouldn't work if, if they were just grotesque characters and, and all we saw was the abject. I mean, we need to see these ridiculous, lavish lifestyles. The, you know, there's scenes in this film where Julianne Moore is at a wealth, you know, a ridiculously over-the-top cocktail bar sipping on a martini. And I was thinking, I would love to be drinking a really? martini. Right? It looked wonderful. It, you know, the slick neon lights and thinking, oh, mm. this kind of a... But then you get the abject that kind of cuts in. So there was a sort of a balancing act. But yeah, it's definitely not an approach where he draws you into the character's world like, say, Wolf of Wall Street and, and creates that sense of discomfort from the kind of the kicker at the end that you realise you've been identifying with someone who's particularly unlikable in the case mm. of, say, DiCaprio or the Malcolm McDowell character. But yeah, for me, uh, look, I, yeah, I think this is a return to form. And what I said at the start, I think this is the only or the first non-Cronenberg scripted film that really struck a chord for me. As much as I like Eastern Promises, History of Violence, uh, Spider um, and A Dangerous Method, n- none of which I think are written by Cronenberg, this is the first one that really felt like a Cronenbergian script. There we go, maps to the stars. I think we can actually say we all did like it, just to differing degrees. And one thing David Cronenberg always does is he works with the brilliant composer Howard Shaw. And the score for this film is just as wonderful as all other Howard score. Howard Shaw scores. Three, triple, ah. Oh. You are here on 3RRR. This is Plato's Cave with Thomas, Josh and Tara. We're going to look at The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. This is the latest film in the young adult novel trilogy by Suzanne Collins. So there are three novels and they've just done what it seems to be the thing we do now, which is you split the last novel in two and make two films out of it. Leaving people on a cliffhanger. Look, I hated it when they did it with The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Stop it. Just suggesting, I don't think this is all that new or shocking as some people may may, 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 may state it is. I've heard a few people be, be feeling very ranty and feeling like they've been shortchanged by this film. I don't think this is a new phenomenon. Well, not entirely, but I do think there's a slight difference between Empire Strikes Back and some of these other ones. There is. I'm being facetious. Let's get into that. Let's give you some backstory in case you're new or like me, you've just forgotten what happened in the previous films. Um, we set, This is a series set in a dystopian future where once a year the ruling political class in the capital select two teenagers from each of the 12 districts for a fight to the death in a large arena. It's known as the Hunger Games um, and it's a, the, and the spectacle of teenagers attempting to survive and attempting to kill each other is broadcast. So the Hunger Games functions as both a distraction from the inequality and oppression that's suffered by the populace and also a deterrent from rebellion since the games are justified as being part of um, a punishment for a previous uprising. Um, 
it's a concept that has resulted in some criticism of the film and novels um, having ripped off other works, such as Battle Royale. But this concept of sacrificing young people to, appe- to appease a higher authority and the concept of creating violent spectacle to d- divert the masses, this goes back to ancient Greek and Roman mythology and, and practice. So fanboys settle down. The reluctant hero of the franchise is Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, In this film begins where the last film ended. She's been rescued from the games by rebels. She's now hiding underground in the previously thought destroyed District 13 colony. She's reunited with her family and with childhood friend and possible lover Gail, played by Liam Hemsworth, and she's mourning the loss of her friends from the game and possible lover Peter, played by Josh Hutchison. He's been taken by the people in the capital. And probably the main point of drama in this story is what has happened to Peter. He's now being used in anti-rebel propaganda by the capital. And we're not too sure whether he's doing this reluctantly or whether he believes whether he believes the hype. Now, the previous films in the Hunger Games series have been defined by containing the spectacle of the actual games themselves. And I think those previous films... We're really careful and clever in not getting too carried away with turning the violence into spectacle, so not not becoming what they were being critical of. And the films also contained a lot of very smart political and social satire about how celebrity culture and popular culture carry political messages to generate ideology. Now, this new film very much focuses on the media satire aspect, and I think this is because it is a story that's been cut in half, so we've just got the first half of the story. I'm sure that the, the final film which is due out next year will deliver more of the spectacle that we are used to in the first two films and the the interesting focus is once again we have julianne moore in this film she she enters the series as the leader of the rebels and she's teamed up with the philip seymour hoffman character in one of his last roles and they're very much trying to use katniss as their new heroic rebel figurehead to counter the propaganda against the capital and that's the really curious dynamic of this film. It's about propaganda wars. There's actually very little action, and it's looking at how people shape image. And again, it's quite overt and surface, but I'm actually okay with that because this is aimed at younger audiences. And, um, and you've got the sense of both Peter and Katniss being kind of made in, in, into pawns. And the interesting element in this film is you've got the introduction of this kind of guerrilla camera crew who reminded me of, say, something like Vice Media, who sort of go in, capture Katniss ranting against injustice, being horrified by atrocity, they kind of capture her response and then very much manufacture it into a message to um, to broadcast for, for popular appeal. And actually this relates to what I was saying in the last segment about um, emotional connection. There are scenes in this film where Katniss does the big powerful emotional speech and you feel the moment and significance of that and then we see how coldly that's turned into a piece of propaganda. Um, even though it's you know it's the side that we're meant to be rooting for because they're, they're, they're fighting the oppressors, and this film starts to really ask us what is the legitimacy and, and ethics of of the rebels using the same dirty tactics as the capital against each other. Uh, I'll be curious to hear what you both think of this film, but I, I'll just quickly say I, I really, really enjoyed this film. This is a series I have very much fallen in love with. I think it's the strongest YA franchise for, for many, many years. And I think this was my, even though the film is only half a story, I found it really satisfying, and it's my favourite film in the franchise to date. I really like this franchise too. I've been a fan from the beginning, mainly because it's pretty much the only one where there is a young female character that is you know, someone who you would actually 
be pleased to see young girls look up to and see as a role model. Um, That's a big part of it, yeah. It's a big welcome change after the Twilight stories, which, <laughs> interestingly enough, the first book of, of Hunger Games really appeared just after the, the kind of the end of those films. So I think Suzanne Collins was really smart um, with her timing as well as her story. But uh, this this film is, a, yeah, another one that is great in this franchise. It is curious how they've split this because it does feel like a complete film. I, I did find that it was quite satisfying. I think where they leave it is very smart. Um, it it has a sense of resolution, but there's so much more you still want to know. So it does leave you wanting more, but it also has a sense of satisfaction because something quite major has sort of come at least to light. So you feel like you've got closure in one aspect, even though clearly another door of like problems is about to open up. Uh, what what I found curious about the way in which this film, because this is really is quite different from the first two in the sense that we're no longer in the games. We've kind of shattered quite literally the illusion of that world at the end of the second film where Cat shoots her bow into the the force field and and really breaks that sense of um, non-reality to get out into the reality but we still have uh, this constant fighting to find what that reality is and one of the ways in which we see that is in her saying that the only reason Peter is is being played by the capital in this way is because he hasn't seen with his own eyes what's really happened, he hasn't seen the devastation and uh, you know I think that that really references a lot of um, global atrocities that we've seen in our history I mean you know the the things like in Chile where those bodies have still never been found and we don't really know the numbers of people that have been murdered. It's that idea of look how the government and the media can cover up uh, these sorts of grand atrocities where literally thousands and thousands of people are executed and we don't even know. Um, So there is a sense of truth to this film even though it is very much set within a very fictional dystopian future world. It also interrogates very strongly the idea of how you can really go to a revolution. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how the second film will play out. I'm not going to pass any judgment on what I think of this, just that it does very strongly posit, at least in this film, that that sense of revolution, even though it has to be completely anti the system, it has to come from within the system. It must use the people who orchestrated and built the system that they're now fighting against. They must have the game maker. They have the, all of the people in the camera crew came from the, the capital. They, they must use Effie and Haymitch. They must use these people who know how it works. It is impossible for the outsiders to fight alone. And I think that's a really curious message. I'm not sure where it sits yet because we're still in the trajectory of the journey of this film, but they're very strongly positing that in this version um, of the finale. And we do get the sense, too, that the revolution is not glamorous, um, but that it has to be made glamorous, even though it must be simple. So even though everyone has their very um, plain living quarters, their, their, their you know, unappealing jumpsuits, there must be somewhere where they can move within that. Katniss must be able to wear something that is more exciting and looks more, um, I guess, something you want to aspire towards. Even uh, the Effie character, she finds a way to, even in shades of grey, to wear the most amazing outfits. You know, this, this is a woman who, who won't allow that system to kind of keep her down. And I, I think that we're going to see that tension play out really well in the last film, um, particularly because the Julianne more character who um, plays Alma Coyne is very much dedicated to that very minimal sense of revolution that no hyperbole you know we don't want to jazz it up too much so I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how those dynamics play out in the end Yeah it's the fascists versus the socialists and, or the, the communists of District 13. In fact I think you've both nailed this film really well and I'm at the risk of just echoing what you've, what you've both said I think this is the most interesting one of the, the three we've seen so far um, I think it explores some ideas 
ideas with a with far more sort of depth. And I thought, for me, the most remarkable thing, it's, I think it's what you said at the, the top of the review, Thomas, is the fact that this film is really about media wars, propaganda wars. But more impressed than more impressively than that is the is the fact that it doesn't appear to pick sides. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence is the is the point of identification. But there are moments in this film where I think we're meant to to be critical of the inhabitants and the, the hierarchy of District 13 as much as we are the capital. Mm. And it's a case of this is a, a really no-win situation. This is a, a Baudrillardian propaganda war. Like, this is a battle of simulations, really. And the, th- the point you may raised before, Tara, about the atrocities, I mean, I think one of the great ironies of this film is when they try to insert Katniss into one of these propaganda, you know, pieces, they insert through this blue screen all these atrocities in the backdrop and it's completely unconvincing. So they can't even actually default to the reality of the atrocities. They have to create them. And I thought that was a really fascinating idea, the way in which they seemed to be critical of both sides at once and it's kind of the, the no-win game of, of the propaganda. I mean, the, the the pieces, the media pieces they put out uh, reminded me instantly of Starship Troopers and the kind of the satire of Verhoeven's film and this <laughs> yes, is, you know, yes. uh, and we'll keep fighting and we'll keep mm. win in list now. I mean, I think there was a kind of a, a, maybe a deliberate um, connection there with those two two films. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that, that struck me here, and again, it comes back to something you've both mentioned, is the, the I guess the mythical quality here. I mean, this is a it's interesting. Um, we we're talking off air about this about some of the character names, you know, like Coriolanus Snow, and there's Castor and Pollux and Cressida. This film seems to be operating within the realms of of mythology, Greek mythology, Shakespearean tragedy, Shakespearean drama, um, and it's almost a case of this is one of the, I guess, the, the curious pieces of, of how this will play out in the last one. How will it demythologize or remythologize the character of of Katniss? Will she come out as the the individualistic sort of capitalistic, you know, capitalist hero at the end, or will they play it for something broader and this idea of the communal struggle of, of revolution? And I kind of like the way this film is a little, again, a little bit ambiguous about its exploration of of mythology. Well, weirdly, the big action sequence at the end of this film doesn't involve her. It's a whole other team that go in in a, in a sequence. That it really reminded me of Aliens Definitely. as well. It's sort of it, it's got a few nods to popular culture like that as well. Some really nice self-aware moments as well. There's a great bit where somebody says you've made her look like she's 35, and I thought that had to be a reference to the fact that Jennifer Lawrence uh, not only has been heavily sexualized in recent times, but often you know she's very young and she's been made to play in certain films a much older older character. I quite like the nods to that and um, and references to other sort of famous bits of popular culture from the last few decades, such as the Manchurian. Candidate. I can't wait to see how that kind of stuff plays out. But I think that's what makes this film so sophisticated, is what you've both talked about a, l- a little bit further, is that it's not goodies versus baddies. Um, this, in many ways, is more sophisticated than most historical films. It's certainly more sophisticated than something like Fury, which we looked at not that long ago, in that she's now on the side of the rebels who are going to fight the oppressors, and they're kind of behaving in the way that, um, that, that, that they're meant to be fighting against. And I love the fact that she's something of a reluctant hero. And, you know, I mean, she's an amazing person because of her own skills and training. Again, she has it. it there's no chosen one scenario here, and I always rant about how much I hate the chosen one scenario. She's really earned her dues, and but she's this reluctant hero and made to be this reluctant figurehead. It reminded me a little bit of Buffy Summers, actually, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because that was a tension she constantly grappled with as well, which is, I don't want to be the hero. I want to hang out and work with my friends to resolve this. Why am I always being pushed to the front of the pack? And I think this film is sort of... um, These films very much have that similar, similar spirit. 
and this oh, we might get into all sorts of more further bigger discussion here but I think this is this comments a little bit on the nature of female heroes as opposed to male heroes where ma- male heroes have traditionally been very individualistic it's really unusual to have a more communal male hero where these these female sent centered narratives tends to be more about involving other people the community and they're just far less individualistic in a way that I I find really uh, positive and helpful I think. I think too that the fact that she's a reluctant hero is um, a very clear kind of uh, not a reluctant hero but the fact that she has to be made an image of a hero rather it it really references the kind of you know mass production of Che Guevara you know this idea that you must have a figurehead for a movement it, you cannot have a, a revolution people will not join unless they can see someone that they can relate to that they want to enlist for and she has to become this icon and the reason that she's sort of a bit reluctant is because she's not really got the chops to be the head of a revolution but the point and the reason that she doesn't go in necessarily to all the battle and that she's you know she was saved in the last film and she's saved in this film constantly and she's the one that you know you kind of have to protect it's not because she's a pathetic woman or for any reason at all like that it's because you have to have a living hero She's or heroine the capital H hero yeah absolutely mm. so that, that that it gives hope to other people and because they've already seen her it's like the propaganda machine the capital did that for them you know she's the obvious person to pick what I think we're going to see potentially in the next film is actually how Kale is the character that is more of a, her- of a hero um, we, we've already kind of seen that in this one where he takes over the camera at one point and she asks why they're filming him instead of her and it it's it's sort of that thing where it's like well we'll stick with him as the honest voice when we're not doing the grand hero narrative i just wanted to bring in one very quick point and it's a it's not really a criticism it's more just a, a point of inquiry i guess and that is we never really see the inhabitants of the capital and it was something that frustrated me about the first two films given that the purpose of the hunger games was that they were screened and watched by the people of the capital for the people of the capital this idea of fulfilling their bloodlust and i think it's interesting that we don't see them in the context here and if we had seen them on the other side to get an idea of what is it what's going on in the capital other than just Coriolanus snow i thought that there might be something else to kind of play off that mirroring of these two kind of curiously corrupt worlds maybe this is something that the last film will explore yep i can't wait to see the last one we've been talking about the latest hunger games film with a really long title so i won't repeat it again you're on plato's cave this is three triple r Three triple R. The final film we're discussing tonight, which is The Dark Horse. This is a, a great film from New Zealand that is truly a heartbreaker, but not nearly as twee as I expected it to be. I was really pleasantly surprised. Can I just clearly say at the front, I bloody love this film. Yeah. yeah. It's, pretty, it's, it's fantastic, and, and surprisingly so, because um, you, you probably think from anything you've seen about it that it's going to be one of those like feel-good films along the lines of like Cinema Paradiso, but it doesn't go down that route. This is much more like Whale writer which is there is a link because cliff curtis is also in that film and he's the lead he plays genesis in dark horse um he's a character who has been incarcerated well not incarcerated but he's been in a a mental institution for a long time and hasn't seen his family specifically his brother who he was very close to as a young boy and has these memories of them as young boys um and his his brother basically kind of you know looking out for him and and teaching him the way with chess and chess being the thing that he is extremely good at uh he he won some tournaments in the past but then suffered a, a breakdown and, and found himself in this mental institution. Um, he, he gets out 
and his brother takes him into the family home to start off with and he thinks that this is going to be the beginning of the repatriation I guess of his life that he's going to make amends with his brother and that they're going to get through this together he's always wanted his brother to kind of put a hand on his shoulder and tell him everything's going to be all right that's his vision of things being better that's his hope for the future when he gets out though and he goes to stay at his brother's home and meets his nephew he realizes quite quickly that that's not how things are going to play out his brother's part of a um a what's the the word i'm looking for gang the gang that's <laughs> the correct gang. sorry what a weird word to forget <laughs> so his brother's part of a gang the word gangster is derived from <laughs> yeah. gang i believe thank you um his brother's part of a gang and basically they're they're, they're quite a violent gang and want to mm. induct um he, Genesis's nephew Manor into this gang. Um, there's, there's some stuff surrounding that that I'm not going to go into just now. We may or may not come back to it. But it's irrelevant for the point that basically what this film sets up is that that life is not easy in this community. This is, you know, the Maori community uh, in a lower socioeconomic town. Um, there, there is very little option for people who are, have, maybe don't have great opportunities in life, who don't come from affluence, who haven't had great uh, educational opportunities. There's not much that Genesis can do. He, he can't really hold down a job and he doesn't have any money and he has nowhere to live and his brother can't help him out for other reasons. He's got his own problems that really he just can't take on his, his brother now. Um, and this is where the film kind of splits. Genesis has to basically goes and finds a group of, of young kids and a friend of his who's running a chess competition. This, this is basically really just a group where kids can go. It's stability. It's somewhere for them to turn up and, and not be around the violence. This is like, you know, one of those sort of options of something else to do. Um, and I think that's really important because a lot of the problems that we see in this community and the film highlights that Manor's problem is that if there isn't somewhere productive to go, that crime does seem sometimes like perhaps the only option or joining a gang is close to having a family because what else is there when you know you 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 kind of live in impoverished circumstances but genesis needs to be a part of this as much for himself as he does for the kids and he says that he's going to take them to this this national chess championship in in auckland they're going to go and you know face the other schools and it that's a real challenge because one it gives hope to the children and the teacher's really worried about the idea of giving hope where hope maybe doesn't exist uh and it also sets genesis up to have to commit to something that he may or may not be equipped for he's still struggling to take his meds he you know he needs to make sure he can get he doesn't have anywhere to sleep at night he's sleeping on under a monument out in the middle of nowhere you know in under the stars so this this is really a very huge challenge but what i loved about this film is not so much that it's a story about you know young you know impoverished people facing a challenge who overcome that blah 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 It it doesn't just do that it's not a twee film that is just about overcoming issues um it's very frank about the way that it approaches them and very realistic about how some of those things could be resolved but maybe not all of them can be fixed even by the end of the narrative of the film but also it it plays out on a post-colonial landscape this this film is really clever in in terms of how it sets up the chess. So the way that Genesis describes the chessboard is that there's you know these these two tribes or these two groups that are kind of fighting to take each other's space. They're fighting over the regional landscape, and he calls it the the fighting for the land. Um, and as we see as the tournaments go on, all of the white kids have the white pieces, and all of the Maori kids have the black pieces, and they they play each other 
but in, in, in kind of a constructive way where they're trying to negotiate the space. Um, and at the end of the film, we really get this sense that, you know, one of the things Genesis says is, don't worry about the other guy. He's just as scared as you. Like this trying to negotiate post-colonialism in, in a place where no one really is benefiting. Um, it, it just, it comes out really beautifully in this chess match. I also quite like the detail that while so much of the issues in this film is black and white and you know, the gang says that we, we have to induct this kid and toughen him up. There's no other option for him. Everything's black and white. Genesis is always associated with colour. Even the opening titles, you have the, the black and white font and it's suddenly there's a splash of colour over it because in Genesis's world, we can, we can mix things up and there's all these... There's all this opportunity and variables. It doesn't have to be so delineated. This is a stunning film for all the reasons you've said plus more. You know, I think Cliff Curtis in the lead here. Cliff Curtis has a long career as a character actor, sort of playing. He's kind of your go-to guy for any ethnicity you you need. He can kind of adopt. If you look at his filmography, he's played every ethnicity you can imagine. But um, in this film, I didn't recognise him at all, and it's just this profound performance. I, I thought at first he may have been a non-professional actor because he sort of has an authenticity. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's powerful. I, I, I choked up just looking at this man's face. I, I thought he was just so powerful. Um, and stylistically, the film conveys kind of his his fragile grasp of reality. And I thought the portrayal of mental illness in this film is beautiful. It shows us that you can live with it, you you, you can manage, but it's tenuous and things can go wrong and it can fall apart in quite a devastating way. It wasn't trying to be too, yeah, nice or pretend that this is not hard work. Beautiful performance. The film mostly is shot with very shallow focus where only the middle ground is in focus. This is quite unusual. Often the background is out of focus and the foreground is out of focus and our eye is trained to look at the middle ground and I think it's sort of helping us to understand his world which is very sort of in the media and the now and everything else is a little bit fuzzy and there's also this constant reference to when you're playing chess you've got to protect the centre you've got to protect the core self and the film does that visually this, I don't know where this film came from I just think they make amazing films in New Zealand and, and you, you get breakaway films like these which just I went into this knowing nothing about it and it blew my mind, it's based on a true story as well which is <laughs> even more remarkable yeah I just that, that is a remarkable truth i mean it, yeah it's hard to believe almost that this could be based on a true story it feels so authentic but it also feels uh, so, just so it's so moving that you almost can't believe real life could play out like that and there's the beautiful humanity i said this show would end on the dark horse people it may fly under your radar because of the kind of film it is but i you know tara and i disagree on so many things and we're both in love with this film it's a good point. actually you and i agree on a fair bit we, we embellish that i think but every um, now and again every now and then but the dark horse please make an effort to find it. It's on limited release through Transmission Films. We also talked about Maps to the Stars. That's on limited release through Entertainment One. And The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part One is on an enormous release through Roadshow <laughs> Films. I think we actually gave thumbs up to all the films tonight. So I did. That was, that I, was, was great. three for three for me. Yeah. I was two for two. I would just uh, pick the Julianne Moore double, but I'm desperate to see The Dark Horse now. <laughs> Josh, that you would love it. You would love it. And Jane Rolston from Boy, who is one of my favourite young actors mm. as well. Yeah. Uh, everyone in this cast is amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's a solid film. Hey, we're going to get out of here. You've been listening to Tara, Josh and myself. Thomas, we'll see you next week. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.